Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. I'm Maddie, your host, speaker, and very passionate speech language pathology advocate. You are listening to the Speechless SLP series with Vanessa Abraham, and you get a unique perspective in each one of these episodes on her journey being the speechless SLP in the ICU bed, unable to talk. So welcome to this series of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. Glad you are here. Sit back, take a listen. Welcome back to the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. We are continuing on with our speechless series with Vanessa Abraham, and we have another guest with us today, Anna Lewis. Anna Lewis is not an SLP, but she is one of our best friends that I am excited to learn about, and you're going to hear why in just a minute. Anna, welcome to the program, and Vanessa, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. It's always that first, like, welcome, and everybody's like, who speaks first, right? So we're excited you guys are both here. And when Vanessa and I were pulling together how and who we wanted on the series, she said, you have to meet Anna Lewis. Anna Lewis, you are who? So I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I have been in the medical field for about six years. And uh, currently, I am a PhD student full-time, uh, but prior to that, I worked as the social worker for a place called the Critical Illness Recovery Center at UPMC Mercy in Pittsburgh. So it's a fairly unique clinic. There aren't very many of them around. And what the clinic is, is it sees survivors of critical illness who have spent extended periods in the ICU. So they have all sorts of symptoms and and things going on that we are seeking to try and help them with. Um, And so that was my life before my PhD program. And now I am doing research in that area too, in, in ICU survivorship and what that looks like for folks coming out. Because it's not just, you know, you come out of the ICU and you're all better. uh, Like, TV shows make it look like. (laughs) So this is not TV medicine or movie medicine. This is real life. And so uh, a lot of folks struggle and we're trying to help with that struggle. Vanessa, this has been something near and dear to you, right? Absolutely. The concept of post-intensive care syndrome was definitely not one that was discussed in grad school. I had the unfortunate opportunity to learn what it's all about just through my journey. Um, I really didn't know what it was that I was experiencing until somebody brought it to my attention. And that's when Anna came into my life. Not something you learned in grad school. Absolutely not. There's no class on PICS. There's not a chapter in a textbook on PICS. It's definitely uh, something that's not talked about. Even the professionals treating me at the time didn't have any clue what was going on. They didn't know what that was. Even today, I still talk to professionals in the medical field and they're very unaware of what PIC stands for, what it looks like. Is this something that's well known in your field, Anna? So it's not. Um, I wouldn't say that PICS is well known in social work. It's certainly not something that we learned about in graduate school either. You know, I was in the medical field for several years before I even heard the term. Now, to be fair, it wasn't really given a name until the early 2010s. So it's only been PICS. It's only had a name since 
think it was around 2012 when they actually named it as a, as a condition, but it's been observed for far longer than that, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did not receive any formal training in it in graduate school. It wasn't until I was in the field and seeing, um, patients actually, before I came to the clinic, I worked with the palliative care team. So we were often working hand in hand with the ICU team for a lot of different reasons for folks. And we had patients that we would follow outpatient for palliative care as well. And we would see these signs and symptoms and that's sort of how I was exposed to PICS. And I was around when Mercy Hospital was founding the clinic here. And so that clinic was founded here in 2018. So we've been seeing patients there since 2018. There were several other clinics around the country that started a little bit sooner than that, but because it's still such a, a, a newly developing field, there is not a lot of education out there on PICS for people coming through professionally. So for those listeners not familiar with palliative care, what's palliative care? So palliative care is a specialty service that is meant to focus on enhancing individuals' quality of life when they have some sort of life-limiting illness. So it's not the same as hospice. Hospice can be a form of palliative care, but that's sort of reserved for individuals who are in the end stages of whatever disease process they might have. Palliative care can be at any point in the disease process And even for folks who are seeking curative treatment, it's more about looking at the person as a whole person and making their journey as comfortable and manageable and high quality as it can be throughout the course of that illness. So, you know, we can start right at the beginning as someone is starting their treatment for whatever disease process it might be and help manage some of the side effects of medication that they're having or work on things like energy conservation and making sure that they are going to still be able to play with their kids when they're going through these treatments. Or we you know, work with individuals who are further along in the process and maybe shifting, thinking about shifting their goals to exclusive focus on comfort. So palliative care works really hand in hand with our ICU teams, for sure. I have so many questions. Vanessa. (laughs) Um, Oh, one more quick for you, Anna. Um, Do speech pathologists work with you in in the PICS program? Yes. So our clinic is one of the most comprehensive in the country. I, I would like to say it's the most comprehensive. I, it's at least one of the most comprehensive. Our team includes a physician or a, the critical care intensivist, a nurse practitioner, a social worker, a speech language pathologist, an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a pharmacist, a respiratory therapist and a dietitian. So our team and every patient that comes sees all of those people. Oh, so it's a very lengthy visit, team. but they get a huge amount of information about, you know, it's sort of that one-stop shop where they just get a huge amount yeah. of information about how they are doing when they come to our clinic. So it's it's intensive, but it's it's a very wraparound sort of service. Like a concierge approach. Absolutely, yes. This is gives me goosebumps because one of the reasons why I do this podcast is to learn about approaches like this and teams like this and work that other people are doing that we can share and learn and integrate. Vanessa, 
I know you have said this has just been key. And I've been so impressed by the team members that you've worked with on your road to recovery. This one's been pretty important for you. Yes, this has probably been one of the best. Um, so let me back up a little bit. Anna runs a weekly group virtually. She's back east. I'm on the West Coast. Um, so it's a virtual meeting that we have every week. And I think I've said in my previous podcast, I've done so many things for mental health. I've done hypnosis, done EMDR. I've done, um, you know, just cognitive behavioral therapy. But her group and being around other PIC survivors for me and hearing their stories, I would say has helped me more than anything. Just knowing that I'm not alone. There's so many people during my day that I communicate with that really, truly, you know, they care, they, they love me, so on. But they don't really understand. And being around other ICU survivors just it makes me feel whole again makes me feel normal in a way and not so siloed isolated yes not alone in this journey what was one of your biggest questions when you first started working with Anna gosh that's a good question gosh I you know every week I feel like I have a question for her every (sighs) week topics change I don't know if there was one specific question there were there were a million and there still are very dynamic um, process then. Yes, every week it changes. And you know, honestly, every week that we do talk, it opens up a whole nother can mm-hmm. of work for me. Um, other topics, other thoughts that come through my mind of, oh, how can I deal with this? How can I, for example, how do I deal with anniversary dates? How do I deal with the PTSD associated with an anniversary date? How do I deal with the mental load of going back to work? Every week there's something like, for example, the topic this week is going to be different than last week. And I know the topic this week's going to open a can of worms in my head thinking, oh, well, yeah, what about this? Or what about that? Or I've experienced this. So I've experienced that. I've experienced that. How can I improve in that area? So to say that there's one thing, I think, I think there's a million for me. So million cans of worms can be translated into a lot of opportunities to unpack the body, mind, heart correlation and address all that you've been through for really comprehensive healing and movement forward. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Topics. I didn't know the meetings were topic driven. Anna, can you share with us some of the topics? Absolutely. So The topics really come from the conversations that we have. So we initially, the group started out as an in-person group here at Mercy. Uh, It was for our clinic patients only. And then March of 2020 hit. And that was Mm -hmm. no longer a feasible way to function for our support group. And we came together as a team and said, you know, with the pandemic happening, we need to make sure that we are providing as much support as we possibly can. And monthly is not going to cut it. When everyone is feeling so isolated, that's just not going to be enough anymore. So we said, what if we went to weekly? What if we did weekly virtual meetings that would open up our ability to, to care for people who are not just our Mercy Hospital patients? It would also open up the opportunity for people who cannot travel to be anywhere. We can't gather in groups. So let's let's just sort of 
let's open this up a little bit and see what happens. And through that, we were able to connect with some other clinics. The, the clinic that Vanessa goes to over on the West Coast reached out to us and said, hey, you know, we have some patients that we would really like to refer to your support group because we don't have one. We had several other clinics do the same thing. And so, you know, leading the group, I always say the group is not for me. Like if we never get to the topic that I brought for the day because the group needs something else, that's great. We'll shelve the topic and we'll talk about it next week. But we do a lot of different topics. So this week we're talking about guided imagery. We do some CBT techniques where we do uh, challenging some negative thoughts that we're having. We've talked about how to talk to your family about all of this and how to help them understand what you're walking through. We've talked about acceptance, setting goals, We've talked about, oh man, we've talked about anniversaries recently when that was something that came up in conversation. So, you know, I, I try and listen to what's being said in the group and hear sort of the, the undercurrents of topics that are being talked about, but not directly talked about. And that's kind of how I pick what we're going to talk about next, because that says to me, okay, this is a topic that would be really good for the whole group because I'm hearing this person sort of mention it and that person sort of mention it. So let's let's bring that to the forefront as part of the conversation. So we've done all sorts of, we had a pet therapist come one time and, and talk about pet therapy. We invite all of our clinic providers. So since we have such a comprehensive clinic, we've invited all of them to come at various times and be like guest presenters. So they've done stuff like energy conservation. Our wonderful occupational therapist has talked about energy conservation. Our speech language pathologists have come and talked about, uh, you know, making task lists to help you with your cognitive functioning and how can we help cognitive function improve in PICs, in individuals who have PICs. We've had our physical therapists come and talk. We've had everybody come in and sort of lend their expertise. And, you know, it, it it's one of my favorite parts of the clinic is that group, because I do think it has one of the most direct impacts on people not feeling so isolated, not feeling like I thought it was just me mm-hmm. and not feeling like I thought I was going crazy. Mm-hmm. We've had people say that. I thought I was going crazy because of all these things that I was experiencing mm-hmm. and coming and hearing other individuals say, I've been where you are. And I went through that process too. And I, you know, I remember feeling like that and it doesn't last forever and it can improve. And this, where you are today, isn't where you're going to be a year from now. I think that has one of the most profound impacts on the patients that we see. So a sense of community, a sense of learning Mm -hmm. and a sense of hope. Absolutely. Is it for the individuals themselves are, is there, or is there a family group? So our group has never gotten large enough that it has needed to split. Uh, we have invited family members. So family members and caregivers are always welcome to come to our group as well. They tend to not stay as long um, in the group. So we have mm-hmm. some individuals who've been in the group since the start and have stayed for the three years that it's been going on, you know, two years since we went fully virtual. And, uh, but Family caregivers tend to not stay in the group quite as long because they don't connect in the same way as the survivors themselves. But family members 
give great feedback that this was helpful in helping me to understand my family member. You know, I'm hearing from other people the same stuff that my family member is saying. And so I get it more than I did before. So we don't have a specific dedicated family group, but family members are always welcome to come to our group. So Vanessa, on a scale of one to four with four being super important and one being not important at all, how important would you say PIX has been for you? Oh, absolutely. A number four, no doubt. You need to be able to heal your mind, to heal your body. Your head needs to be in the right place. Mm -hmm. If you're dealing with chronic depression, anxiety, um, you know, not wanting to get out of bed, feeling alone, all those horrible thoughts that go along with, you know, a, a hospital critical illness, ICU stay, you're not going to recover if you would, if your head was in the right place. And for me personally, being around a group of people mm -hmm. talking out having people understand me has made a world of difference. I find with myself when I hang up from my Zoom meeting with Anna during the week that my attitude and my willingness to to want to get out of bed is so much better um, just because I know I'm not alone. So kudos to you for reaching out and being brave. So many people, I think, just turn those emotions off and say, that's a part of my life I'm done with, I'm, I'm through it, I'm surviving. Yet you said, this is a resource and I'm going to step into this. What did it feel like being that vulnerable, knowing you were looking for something somewhere? Can you share with us some of the thoughts and feelings you had before your first session with joining PICS and then the relief you felt? Um, I think... I think with the person that originally referred me, it was, it was really strange how it all kind of came out, but she referred me. And at first I was thinking, really, really, this is me. This is my profile now that I'm an individual that she's recommending go and seek counseling for this thing called post-intensive care syndrome. I, you know what? I have I have PTSD. You're telling me I have PTSD. No, this can't be. No, no, no. It's kind of denial in a way. Um, and then I went to the first meeting, the second meeting, and then the 10th and 20th meeting. And I realized, yeah, this, this truly is me. And not only that, but this is really helping me. I was also doing so many other treatments. Like I said, EMDR and hypnosis, so, so many things. And I never walked out of those treatments the same way I do walking out of our weekly sessions with Anna, where I'm around other people that are struggling with the same mental issues and the depression that I have been going through. So, um, that was, that was just key for me. And I'm so grateful that they did refer me and they did introduce yeah. me on the topic of PICS because I really don't know where I'd be without the conversations that we've had in the past, I don't know, two years or so since I've been attending Anna's sessions every week. And I did notice I took a few months off. Maybe it was more than a few months because I was, the times of the meetings were times that I had either things with, you know, doctor's appointments or, or whatever life. And I noticed during that time frame that mentally I slipped back. Mm -hmm. 
I told you this too, Anna, when I came back a month ago, I was like, I need to start coming back to these again. This was good for me. This is a good place for me. I need to put this back on my calendar and make sure this time is open so I can be available because I needed it and everyone around me needed me to go to it. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing. You've mentioned something before about ICU diaries. I'm not sure who would be the one to ask that question, direct that question to. I'm going to let about that because she's, she's the one that. She's nodding her head. Anybody who's listening yeah. to the podcast, Anna's just nodding her head. <laughs> All right, Anna, take it away. Yeah. So the ICU diary project was something that we did here uh, that is a tool for ICU survivors in processing what happens during their ICU journey. So, so many people who spend time in the ICU have delirium, lose track of time, lose days, like actually lose memory of the time that they were there and mix things up, you know, so that's a hard part of being in the ICU is it doesn't really give you good logical thought about what that experience was like. So the ICU diary is a physical diary. It's a physical journal that can stay with the patient in the room. And it's not necessarily for the patient. They can certainly write in it if they are alert and and want to. It's more for the team to be able to, the team and the family to be able to record. This is, you know, this is what happened this day. You know, the nurse might write this day, your family came and visited for this much time, or we washed your hair and braided it. We painted your nails. You know, we, you were doing a little bit better and could interact with me a little bit more today. And it gives that chronological sense of what actually happened to the person. So when they are a little ways down the road and they're, they're out of the ICU and in the recovery process, they can look back and piece their memories together, put that together. And, you know, we had a patient one time who said, I thought that I was boxing people. I thought that I was, I was a boxer. I thought I had boxing gloves on and I was boxing against people. And it was because they were in mitt restraints. And so they had these mitts on their hands and they thought they were boxing gloves and they were able to look back in their ICU diary. And their nurse had written about that. of Like, you know, you were, you were trying to pull your tubes and lines out. We didn't want to, but we had to put these mitts on you so that you didn't pull your tubes out. And so they were able to sort of make sense of some of the delirium that they had. And it takes away some of that power of making it so scary of a memory when you can add back in the truth of what was going on. So it, it sort of uh, helps people to get some of that logic back in their story and some of that, that time frame back in their story. Um, we also included for folks pictures of what the ICU rooms look like, because a lot of times they don't actually remember the physical space so well. We put in descriptions of all the different team members so that they'll know, you know, who they saw. That's also helpful for family members as they're there, they can look and see, you know, all of the machines. We have pictures of some of the machines that they might be on and, and descriptions of what they are and what they do. So it adds back in some of that information that gets lost for people as they're going through the experience to help them process it down the road. Amazing. When I, when Vanessa first told me about ICU diaries, I thought, well, this is something that, of course, it's a diary. It's something I would write as the patient, right? Mm -hmm. What an outside of the box way of thinking 
because we don't know what the when I walk into an intensive care room as a speech language pathologist, I, I don't know what that patient is thinking mm-hmm. and where their you know distorted reality might be. So mm-hmm. I love the ICU diaries because it really fills in the blanks. Mm-hmm. So then the person can go back and make their own connections. Yes, they can go back and make sense of what happened to them in, in outside of whatever delirium they might be, might have been having, or if they were even, they might have been aware and hearing, but not able to open their eyes, or for whatever reason, they may not have had all of their sensory awareness. And so that can help fill back in those logical pieces and make sense of that story for them. Any HIPAA um, restrictions or anything like with that? How did the staff respond to the ICU diaries? Did they see it as an extra task? So it's a little tough to get some buy-in at Mm -hmm. first because they do see it as an extra task. You know, when you're an ICU nurse or you're the doctor taking care of a patient, sitting down and taking the time to write Mm -hmm. a note about that patient can feel onerous or like something that you could maybe skip that day. You know, I'm not going to worry about this today, but when they saw the effects for people after that was really valuable, they got the feedback about how valuable those patients found it to be when they were able to process after the fact. And they said, okay, you know, we, we see the point in this, you know, it's not just another task for me to do. There's a real reason and it can be really beneficial for these patients down the line. So, all right, we see the value. So we'll, we'll go for it. Excellent. Maybe having them come back and be guest speakers. <laughs> like Vanessa can go back and say, this is what the ICU diary did for me. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was very fortunate that um, Dr. Rosen gave me a notepad. Well, he told my husband to get me a notepad and I journaled on my own, but I was, mm-hmm cognitively aware and I was not heavily sedated. Um, so I have a lot of things written down, but I remember speaking with Anna about this probably within the past year and thinking, what a brilliant idea. Mm-hmm. Having um, information in this diary as to what a tracheostomy is, mm-hmm. what's a peg tube, um, you know, what do these processes, procedures look like? So some parents and, you know, loved ones, spouses can refer to this and know what their loved ones are going through. Um, I wish my mom had had that. I remember, you know, she was so confused and trying to go to Dr. Google and figure out what these procedures are. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, so many people are confused what a speech pathologist does. Why is a speech pathologist taking me to radiology and why are we doing a swallow study with a speech pathologist? You know, what does a speech pathologist work on? A lot of people just think speech. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a nephrologist? You know, there's so many, especially in my care, I had teams of doctors and at the time I didn't know what they were all doing. They just had these fancy names on their badges. So to have all of this information in a diary that the loved one can just go to and flip through and look and say, okay, this doctor is looking at this. This doctor is looking at that. This is what that procedure is going to do. Um, just in one one place would be really, really a nice feature for families. Is So patient-friendly terms, is that currently part of the ICU diary? 
Yes. So all of our materials are at a fourth grade reading level. Um, yep. So it is it is as friendly as possible for individuals when they go through and read. So it's very simple terms. It's plain terms. Mm-hmm. And um, we also try and make sure that we put in anything that makes noise in the ICU. <laughs> so like anything mm-hmm. that's going to make noise makes it in the diary as well. Like this is what you what noises you might hear and what it means because the alarm bells and everything going off can be so frightening for patients and families. So that's another thing that we always try and make sure that we have in the diary is like, if it makes noise, we want it in there so that families and patients aren't panicking when, you know, Mm -hmm. there's air in an IV line and the IV pump won't stop beeping. You know, is that, is that a bad thing? Do I need to call the doctor? You know, that sort of thing can be really helpful for families to just know no, this is just your, your nurse needs to come in and push a button and everything will be okay. <laughs> right. Right. And for the patient yeah. to know, maybe exactly members can share because exactly. Okay. I, I know that sometimes in the middle of the night, I wake up with worries and I go back to sleep and then I get up the next day, get up and out of my bed and I go target those worries. Mm-hmm. But for patients like Vanessa, Mm-hmm. she's stuck. She's locked in. She can't right. go anywhere except lay there and worry. And so to be able to have some of those questions answered for her to be able to journal is another mm-hmm. important thing and, and have a resource where she can start getting her questions answered. Mm-hmm. So important. We are coming down to the end of our time. How can people become more involved in PICS? Can they, is there a website? Is there, can we order materials? Can we start our own PICS? How does all of that work? Yeah, so there is a website. The Society of Critical Care Medicine has a great breakdown of what PICS is and what PICS family is, because that's something that we kind of didn't talk too much about today. PICS family is sort of a subset of PICS where family caregivers can develop anxiety, depression, PTSD as a result of their loved one's ICU stay. So the Society of Critical Care Medicine website has a great section about that, breaks down everything about what PICS is, what people might experience when they're going through it, what family members can expect and how they can sort of support their loved ones. Um, there are also online support groups like ours. There are message boards. The Mayo Clinic does a message board about PICS. So it's sort of an online support group community, but it's not like a specific time where you have to go. There are also pages on Facebook. One of our group members loves to use, there's a post-intensive care syndrome Facebook group that she is a member of. And she she's talked about how that has been really helpful for her. So there are things out there for people who want to learn more about PICS. And there's also a really phenomenal organization that is dedicated to combating PICS in whatever way they can called the Critical and Acute Illness Recovery Organization. That's a mouthful, so they just call it Cairo. (laughs) So (laughs) Cairo is a collaborative of all of the clinics like ours internationally that want to participate can come and participate and we come together and share best practices for Uh, the clinic and also for the support groups so we come together and kind of problem solve together and support one another and try and make sure that we are supporting patients as best we can so cairo is another great resource Um, they have a twitter page they have a website and that's another great place to get information well, this podcast does a full show note. So we will, when you return your guest information, please put those links and resources Absolutely. in there and we will include those in the show notes. So anybody who's listening to this, go click on the show notes. 
very ADA friendly, everything, the whole transcript is out there. And then there's a section at the end where it's, you know, carry this conversation further. And that's where we can put some of those links for people who are interested in that. Great. I will definitely do that. Final last words from you, Anna, final advice for um, patients. So for patients, my best advice is find your community, find your people that are going to remind you that you're not alone. Groups like this are out there. Groups like you, like the group that I facilitate that we have here, they're out there. And if you can't find a group or a group setting is not really for you, uh, find your clinic, find your team that's going to really wrap around you and make sure that they support you the best that they can. For family members, I would say, number one, believe them. Believe your loved one about what they're experiencing. And when they say that it's real, it's real. So please believe them. The other thing that I would say is to be their fiercest advocate. Be the friendly thorn in the side when they're in the hospital and you think something is not right. Advocate for them. And before you try and problem solve for them, ask them if that's what they want or they just want to hear, I'm here for you and that sucks. And I'm going to stay here with you even though it sucks. So before you start you know, jumping in and trying to fix it, sometimes that's all that people need is just the empathy. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. believe them is number one though. That's, that's our like mantra in the clinic. We believe you. We believe you, even if the tests don't show it, even if your even if your mocha is totally normal and you're telling us you're having cognitive issues, we believe you. We don't believe the test. So believing people is the the first part. Excellent. Vanessa. Yeah, my final mocha, words. <laughs> my mocha was normal too. <laughs> uh, I I'm just sitting here in agreement one hundred percent with everything Anna's saying. Just everything from believing them, being their support system, advocating for them, finding your group, finding your community. That is huge. Some of my closest people in my life now are people that have been down a journey, not necessarily like mine, but have a story, Mm -hmm. have experienced something in their life that has led them down a new path, some a critical illness, a something tragic, something profound that's happened in their life. And those people are the people that I now resonate with. And having that tribe and that community has been so helpful for me. And that's why I think Anna's group that she holds every week has been so helpful for me because those are my people. So that's been, that's what's helped me per se for caregivers. I would say everything that Anna said, you know, support them, believe them, fight for them, um, attend counseling yourself, attend counseling with your loved one. So you can talk about these topics together, bring those to the table, attend some PICS classes or courses with them um, just to try to understand what they're going through. Be patient too. It's a long journey. It's a long, hard journey. But being patient is another one. So I think that's that's about it. <laughs> and PICS provides the hope and the resources and the community. 
for people who are recovering from post-intensive care. Absolutely. Well, thank you both very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you so much, Anna. Thank you for helping me and, and being on this podcast. And thank you to you, Maddie, as well, for having us. This has been a great topic to talk about. Mm-hmm. I know you were excited about it. Very excited about it. Just wait to meet Anna. <laughs> Very passionate about this topic. As she should be. Excellent. As, as I, yeah, I love this podcast making a difference. Thanks. So, hey, SLPs, that concludes this episode of the Missing Link for SLPs podcast. Please visit my website at freshslp.com. Follow me on Instagram or jump on Facebook to connect in our safe and friendly Fresh SLP community where we are empowering new and transitioning SLPs. If you found value in this episode or in any way had an aha moment or I gave you a fresh perspective, Please show me some SLP love and support me on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app or subscribe to me on YouTube. You got this.